my first year of college, I spent at a small Bible college in Canada, and we had to read through the entire uh, Bible over the course of the year. Now, we just completed reading the New Testament in eight weeks, and those of you that held with it and were able to do it, you know it actually takes something out of you to read that much, actually. It's about a half an hour a day, but still, in the midst of everything you do, that's a lot. Well, we, when we did the Old Testament, it was about 15 weeks you get to read the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a lot longer than the New Testament, if you look in the Bible that you have in front of you. And it, it was a lot of work. But I remember we had a journal. And, and back then, handwritten journals, entries, um, and you could, you know, you turn it into a notebook. So it wasn't like it was a huge amount of journaling, one page for each book of the Bible. What did you get out of it? That kind of thing. But by the time we got to Revelation, I was tired of journaling. And so I remember getting a little lazy by that point as I'm writing. I wrote maybe one or two very short, probably inconclusive and vague sentences to start the page. And then I quoted Revelation, I think it was Revelation 5.12 as I reflect back. Uh, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. With the closing line, need I say more, dot, dot, dot. When it was returned to me, the notebook, the uh, uh, professor uh, wrote, dot, 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 yes, actually you do. And I think, I think my grade reflected it. Um, for those of you that, that made it, we were reading the, the New Testament in eight weeks. If you did it, congratulations. You're, you're there. It's quite an accomplishment. A lot of people who are believers can't actually say they've intentionally read the, the New Testament. Uh, and you have done it. If you didn't make it, that's okay. Here's the beauty. If you're close, finish it out. If you're not close, it's okay. You own the book, and the particular format of this book is actually really valuable with no verse numbers, no chapter numbers, reading it like a novel. Someday you'll say, you know what, I want to read Matthew again. Read it this way. You have the book now in your collection. Try it out. But you completed it. We ended it on Revelation I was talking to a pastor friend of mine recently who did this last fall. He said, you know what your congregation is going to ask you now? They're going to want you to preach on Revelation because that's the last book everybody read. That's a book that nobody uh, uh, has, you know, that, that people don't, generally don't read as much or don't understand as easily. Uh, it is a hard book. So I'm going to unlock all the mysteries for you this morning is what I wish I could say. I'm not going to do that at all. You ended with Revelation if you're reading this, and we are going to take the hope of Revelation this morning and talk about it a little bit. If you read the actual book, the whole thing, the, the first three chapters seem the most accessible to us. So the seven churches uh, in Asia Minor that they're being written to, those letters that are written seem like they, they're, they're very accessible to people. Okay, you know, some of them are lukewarm, and some of them are, are on fire, and some of them stand, need to stand strong in persecution. We can work with those. Those are the things that are preached on the most. But then it goes beyond that. You get into this language of beasts, you get into the language of swords coming out of mouths and horses of various colors, a third of this being struck down, a third of that, a third of the other, 12 of this, 144,000 of that, time, times, and half a time, different lampstands and bowls and seals and scrolls and people eating things. It's very confusing to us. There's just no way of getting around it because we don't have a comparable type of literature in our day and age. You can kind of find something maybe in sci-fi that gets close to it or allegorical literature that maybe gets close to it. This literature is called apocalyptic literature. It's trying to use a specific way of writing to convey something very important. 
And so that what you see are either symbols or signs. They're pointing to something or beyond something uh, when it's writing in the text. And Revelation generally unlocks itself, although I don't know that we're going to fully understand it. We're given enough to go on in Revelation to understand our hope and the fulfillment of our hope. But let's face it, it's going to be beyond our wildest expectations, which is why this genre works so well. We just don't have anything like it. I'll give you an example, though, of how it kind of gets unlocked along the way. The president of our denomination wrote a very nice letter earlier this year. And and at one point he wrote in there, um, we don't worship a donkey or an elephant. We worship the lamb. You get the imagery, right? That's how revelation functions. That's what's going on in the text. So we can understand it. We just have to begin to unlock it. Why the color red or why 12 or things like that. And the author, uh, John, unlocks some of that for us. But what Revelation does is it ends with our hope. For those who follow Jesus Christ, this tells us what's going to happen, where the road leads, what the fulfillment is. It actually tells us what's going to happen if you don't follow Jesus Christ as well. But the grand plan of God is the new heaven and the new earth. What we live in now, God's good creation has been affected profoundly by sin. And God is in the business of remaking it and putting it back together. And Revelation tells us the story of this is what's going to happen. This is how it's finally going to be put back together, that which is broken. And it ends with the new Jerusalem coming out of the sky, the city for all those who are in Christ to dwell in together in God's glory forever and ever. And you get a picture of this in Revelation 21. I'll just read two verses. It says, I did not see a temple in the city, this new Jerusalem, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. See that we're in the presence of God at this point. And in verse 27, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Those are the people who get to come in. Those who have stood strong, who took the salvation Jesus gave and stood with him through thick or thin to the very end. What this gives us is a portrait of of God's shalom. Not just peace in the sense of of, uh, absence of conflict, but the highest good God has for us, his creation, being revealed to us. And we can finally live it out without sin, without evil in the presence of those things, in God's presence. And we also see God's Shekinah, glorious dwelling with us. That's what we get to experience. So you see this morning, the veil is torn in two. That's what happens at the cross when Jesus died. The veil in the temple was torn in two. What was that veil doing? But, but that was where the Shekinah glory was. Behind the veil, once a year, the high priest could go in, sacrifice, But God's presence was essentially limited. When the veil is torn, now all of a sudden we have the opportunity to be made holy by the blood of Christ and brought into God's presence. And here, the fullness of that presence is realized at the end of all things. What does it mean in practice? It means that chaos will be gone, pain, fear, those things will be gone. We won't have identity crisis. We'll know who we are and who we're with. Sickness, disease, anxiety, death, gone. That sounds lofty, doesn't it? That's God's plan. That's what's revealed to us in Scripture as to where God is taking us. Victory in Christ, seen for what it is. That's the path that we go down if we follow Christ. And the the message I want to catch from Revelation this morning is that we're supposed to be dressed and ready for God's new world. 
We're going to get there in, in Revelation 21 in just a moment. Or 22, excuse me. But let's just go through some preliminaries here uh, so we're on the same page. This is Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, when we celebrate that Jesus Christ came back from the dead. Historians, and I'm trained as a historian, I'm just not a very good one. But I'll tell you this, um, it just wasn't what I was going to do in life. But I love it. And as I read history and as I read historians, believers and non-believers alike don't seem to dispute the fact that Jesus actually existed. You'll hear it. You guys will hear it on social media right now. It'll go around. Did Jesus really exist? And, and, but people that begin to really investigate it, the primary source material, which is how we do history, is there and is compelling and points to Jesus actually existing, that Jesus actually existed, ministered, and died on a cross. Good historians will accept this. Say, yeah, that's obvious. That's the case. But that's not the central claim of Christianity. Today we celebrate the central claim of Christianity. Not that Jesus existed. That, of course, is important. Not that Jesus came as a baby in a manger. That's important. But that's not the high point of our faith. That's, that's a preliminary. That's an important uh, step to the, the main point, the crux of the whole thing. The grand claim of Christianity is that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. It wasn't first century CPR that raised Jesus Christ from the dead or because they had a defibrillator in the tomb in the first century. It wasn't by natural means. It was the power of God raising Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the claim of Christianity. And then Paul will go on to tell us exactly what that means in one of the first and earliest creeds. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is then how we enter into that presence. That Jesus Christ is the one who has all authority in my life over every action, thought, word, and deed. And that I believe that that's the case. That I believe that this hope that we're going to read about today is the direction that this all goes when I'm in Christ. That's the central claim and what it means. The evidence continues uh, for historians. uh, Even skeptical historians have a hard time grappling with what to do with the empty tomb. Because the evidence still points to that being the best explanation. People try and come up with all kinds of different things. Mass hallucinations and people stealing the body. And it's been going on ever since day one, really. But the evidence continues to point to the fact that the tomb was empty on that first Easter day. And the question becomes, what does that mean? What does the resurrection of Jesus Christ mean? Here are three things. uh, And they're all important. First is it means we can have communion with God directly. The veil was torn in two. Jesus opened the way for us to have direct communion with God in this life and what is to come. And that happens through Jesus Christ. The second is that there is life beyond death then. Death doesn't have the final word. God defeated it in Jesus Christ. He defeated death. And the third is what we're going to get at today, which is that over all of that, what we're stepping into in this new life is the new creation that God is making right now, even in this world. And it starts with you and me having that communion with God. To put it in the words of of biblical scholar N.T. Wright, he says, Easter is just the beginning of God's new world. The idea of a new age so popular just now is a feeble pagan parody of the reality, which is this. 
that when Jesus burst out of the spice tomb on the first Easter day, the history of the cosmos, everything created, changed its course. Easter is the victory of the creator over evil. It is the victory of the God of love over all tyranny. It declares that after all, God is God and that he, his kingdom shall come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Easter speaks of a world reborn. This is one of those moments where you look at this and you realize that God is just. In his very nature, God is just. I don't mean that in a punitive sense that he punishes. I mean that he puts things to right that are wrong. He justifies. I'm a a news hound. I like to read news and read a lot of it and a fairly diverse uh, segment of news. And I do enjoy political news, although I don't end up having a lot of political conversations with a lot of you because it doesn't always work out that well. Uh, But let me talk politics for a moment to make you nervous this morning. Not because we disagree. It's because usually when I, as a pastor, talk to somebody uh, politics, they usually assume I have the exact same opinion they do. And so it's at both sides of the issue. So it's very interesting to have those discussions. But let's, let me make you nervous and talk politics for a moment. So uh, if you look at... Um, I'm really not going to do that much. If you look at the different uh, uh, things that are, are on the agendas right now and the things people talk about, you'll have people talk about concerns about wealth redistribution. You'll have people talk about concerns about equal pay or wages or those sorts of things. Over the last couple of years, we've had hashtags dominate our headlines, haven't we? Black Lives Matter. And then shortly after that, Blue Lives Matter. I don't want to talk about the specifics of those right now. What I want to say is this. Even if we may have different ways that we come about it, do you know what we hate? Injustice. We hate injustice. We really do. We hate injustice and we want things to be right in the world. We may have different understandings of what right looks like, to be sure. But we want things to be right and justified and the way they're supposed to be. To go a little deeper with that more to the point, we long for more than what's going on right now. We do. We, even if things are going very well in our lives individually, we know that things are wrong in the world around us. It doesn't take much reading of the news to figure that out or even much life experience to figure out that things still aren't right in the world. And we want right. We want it from the inside out, I believe. But I I believe this. We know from our deepest parts that we can do an awful lot to right injustices and fix things and course correct things in the world. But I think we really know in our deepest parts that we can't fix it all. That humanity cannot fix everything. There will always be another problem to fix. But God says, I'm going to fix it all. I'm going to justify it all. Real justice, putting things to right, is in God's hands. It lies outside of us. That's absolutely certain. And a personal, loving, and as it turns out, inviting God says, I'm fixing the problem. Are you in? It's deep in our core, I think, that we want that reading and finding this quote that I just uh, quoted to you, uh, N.T. Wright also tells a story in that very same chapter of his book on discipleship. It's a very interesting uh, story that I think talks about this deepest part of us. He references a story about uh, in the Soviet Union, the days of communism, uh, a party speaker was standing up to kind of influence a whole big room of people assembled that the party was it. 
and, and rounded out his uh, message to everybody with, well, we all know God is dead. We all know that Jesus never existed. The church is an oppressive institution. Uh, the church uh, is behind the times anyways. It's wrong. The state is what matters. The party is what matters. That's the future. And as he went to sit down after saying all this, a Russian Orthodox priest sitting in the front row said, will you permit me two words? That's it, just two words to the assembly. And he reluctantly said, yes. Now it translates to three words in English. Orthodox priest stood up, and you can participate here, and he said, he is risen. risen They've been saying it for a thousand years. Why would they stop now? It was deeply ingrained in them. I think we know at our core that some of this is deeply ingrained in us. And if we understand... That, that, that desire to have things put to right is in us, we entered the world of revelation at that point. We understand what's going on. It's the world set to right. So let's look at Revelation uh, 22, verses 12 through 17. It'll come up on the screen, or you can find it in your Bible or on your phone, however you're reading it today. It's Jesus speaking. It won't come up on the screen. Pardon me. Look, Jesus says. I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The new day starts with me, Jesus says. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. As believers, a lot of things are at odds with our hope. There are a lot of things that try and push against our hope, maybe even directly attack our hope. You hear it in the story of, of the communist leader standing up saying the church is dead, Jesus never existed, yada, yada, that kind of stuff. And I, I've confronted that as well. People say the church is outdated. You read it. I've had people say things like that to me. The book you're reading is outdated. It's old. It's 2,000 years old. Get rid of it. We've moved on. We're smarter than that now. People will look at it and they'll say, well, the Bible's just misogynistic, we can't read it, or the God of the Old Testament is just mean, so why would we follow him? Or people will say worse things, more personal. Oh, you're just a hater or a bigot. Direct attack on our hope. But sometimes it's more subtle, the attacks on our hope and the things that kind of chip away at our hope that we have in Jesus Christ and the, and the hope of what's to come. You know, we, we live in a culture that's deeply... Uh, uh, concerned about being inclusive and not exclusive and sometimes the passages we read in scripture we just heard one today sounds a little exclusive doesn't it we want to be inclusive god's a god of grace isn't he and so we we start to think well maybe all religions do really go the same direction maybe god really doesn't have a plan b for my neighbor really i don't have to tell him about jesus i'm sure they'll find out some other way god is that gracious he'll he'll bring everybody in right whether they want to or not but wait, if he's inclusive and wants to make sure that he rec re respects their, their desires, maybe he won't bring them in if he doesn't want to. You know, it starts to get kind of complicated with the thinking, I guess. But he's gracious. We start to, it starts to chip away. We live in a, a, a culture that, that 
kind of chips away at the morality too around the edges. So we start to justify things, even in the church, that maybe we ought not justify. And we start to just slip into sin, right? But God loves me. God created me the way I am. So that means I should be happy. That's the bottom line of life. And so we start to do things that maybe we ought not to do. We change uh, what we do with our, our money and, and spending habits or, or sexual morality or, or even food or whatever it is. We start to just focus the attention on us rather than on giving glory to God. It chips away at our hope. And so we're going to enjoy now at the expense of later. We're going to get the reward and the wages now instead of when Jesus comes to pay them later. Oh, and he'll pay the wages later. It's just we already got now, and we're giving it up for the better future that we have in him. It doesn't mean we can't enjoy life. It just means that something better awaits than now. All of our hope is not right now. It's in the future, in God's future, and the new world to come. And the message that we hear right here in Revelation is that people of God need to be ready. We need to be ready for what God is bringing to us. And you note, as you hear the text, you hear the urgency in the text. In fact, if you read a little bit before that, you discover that now is too late. It's too late by the time, by the end of Revelation, to really make changes one way or the other. You should have been ready for this moment. You should have seen that it was coming. You should have been dressed for when Jesus came. And you can see in this moment that whether we want to admit it or not, Jesus himself proclaims, look, I'm the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. That's the A and the Z, the first and the last. They're all three saying the same thing. Jesus says, I am over everything. I am the authority over all that ever was and is. So I come and I'm the righteous judge. I can judge everybody and hand out the wages based on what they've actually done. It doesn't mean that our salvation is by works, but it does mean that we're going to be judged by them in the end. Be ready. The reward is the question, did you persevere? Did you keep with Jesus through the whole thing? And as you can see, the contrast is made with the dogs. Now, this hits us hard in our culture because let's face it, we spend a lot of money on our dogs in our culture. Let's actually clarify. We spend way too much money on dogs in our culture. We have a dog. I think the dog is great, but there's a limit to how much I want to spend on the dog. But in the Middle East, both in the ancient world and now, dogs generally are considered unclean. If you've ever been in a part of the world where there are stray dogs everywhere, they generally function more as a nuisance than like family pets. That's how they work. And that's the image that's being given to us here. They're unclean. They're living by their own rules and they can form packs and cause issues and they're ankle biters out for their own interests. And that's it. That's what they're doing. And the, the listed sins there are things that, that either do something like look for a separate authority from God, the sorcerers or something like that. Uh, look for, take good things and turn them upside down, right? Sexual immorality. Or they're just worshiping false things like the self or an idol, which is just a fancy way of saying a false thing or a thing that doesn't really exist in reality. What we need to have before that day comes is laundry day with Jesus. Right? He's given us the roll of quarters. He said, I want you to be washed white. That's what the sacrifice of the cross did. I want you to be clean. Then you can be in my presence. The problem is sin. That's what needs to be cleaned up in the first place. But the problem is sin keeps chipping away, trying to pull us back, trying to soil the linen. Let's put it a, a, a different way here. Uh, dog example again. 
We have a dog. I like the dog a lot. She's a great dog. She's mostly a tug-of-war dog, not a catch dog. There was no way to know that when we got her. I'm more of a throw the ball and catch, but we, we do both. So I was throwing the ball early on when we got her, and she happened to be a very nervous dog. Um, and so that came with some, some issues. So I remember throwing the ball. She's chasing it down the hall, comes back, throw the ball. We do it a few times. And then, and hang with me here, she brings the ball back, drops it in front of me, throws up on it, <laughs> looks up at me, tail wagging, throw it again. <laughs> that's disgusting. She's a cute dog, but that's disgusting. But she saw no problem with the ball in its current state. Some of us come to Jesus with our soiled robes and we say, just accept them the way they are. Just accept me the way I am. That's who you are, right? God, just accept me. And Jesus says, I need to clean you up first. Then we can commune together. Then we can be in the presence together. And it's going to be good. But I need to clean you up first. There's an example we can take from one of the churches at the very beginning of the book of Revelations, the church in Sardis. Uh, it's in chapter 3. It won't come up on the screen either, so you can listen or follow along and what you've got in front of you. Jesus is actually speaking here, and, and he says to John to write this down, to the, to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. Do you hear that same urgency? If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The, the churches that are listed here were all in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. The church in Sardis is an interesting case, just the community itself in Sardis. We won't go deep into it, but there's a story worth telling uh, that talks a little bit about the complacency of the people and their overconfidence in who they are. And they were, in the 600 years before this uh, would have been given to them, uh, they were conquered twice and then destroyed by an earthquake once in that time. Uh, obviously, they had nothing that they could do about the earthquake. But the two times they were uh, conquered in 216 B.C. by the Seleucids, uh, that one's not the one I want to talk about. In 549, before that, they were conquered by the Persians. And it really was overconfidence that did it. As the story goes, uh, they, they sit up a little bit on a hill. They were fortified. The Persians couldn't get in. They could not break through the fortifications. There was a secret entrance in the back that only the town of Sardis knew about. The Persians didn't. It was a very hard part of the hill to climb and a very hidden entrance. Well, one night, one of the two sentries standing there on the high tower dropped his helmet, came out in the middle of the night to get his helmet and go back up. One of the Persians saw, and the rest is history. They broke in through the back secret entrance, all because a guy dropped his helmet. 
They were overconfident. They had no guards, really, to speak of at that gate. They were so confident nobody would find the way in. And, and when you read these letters to the churches, you, you get the history is kind of behind that, the character of the town. That's their character. They've been like that for a long time. They seem to have lived on ancient prestige. They seem to have lived on sort of overconfidence and who they were, not who they are. And as you see, they have a reputation for being alive, but they're not actually alive. They're trying to present something different than the case. Of course, you can do a lot with this, right? The church can function like this. This is written to a church. We could take a lot from that, as could a lot of churches. Sometimes we need to actually uh, improve at the times and not just live on the prestige of the past. That's for sure. Um, For our own personal sake, we can look at this and say we could have the reputation of being alive, but, but we could be dead, actually. It looks like there's, there's life there, but we're not. And we can see that culturally even, right? Where we've got the morality that comes from this book here, but we've given up on the God who gave it in the first place in many ways. Sometimes that's the case with us. But it's interesting that complacency would be an issue here because for so many of us, I think we've thought about Christianity as a transactional thing where we say the prayer, we say yes to Jesus Christ, and yeah, there's some level of sanctification, but that's kind of the end of it. That's how it's culturally been heard all too often. You say the prayer, you're in. Don't have to do anything else. Don't have to change anything else. Jesus is going to wash away your sins. Good for all all to go. But it's interesting. We're being confronted with a hope beyond that simplicity right now in the book of Revelation. We can't be complacent in just a prayer that we've said. Yes, that saves. But we need to walk that path of righteousness. I watched a, a debate uh, recently with, uh, it's an old debate with Frank Turek, who's a Christian apologist, and Christopher, the late Christopher Hitchens, who was a very witty uh, but strong atheist. Um, and when you watch the debate, it was very interesting because, uh, one, it seems like Hitchens would be happy to be anywhere else but there, like he's kind of flippant about the whole thing. But Frank Turek does a, a tremendously good job uh, of presenting the Christian hope along the way. And what's interesting is, Hitchens was a very educated, very educated man who knew his opponent uh, as far as Christianity goes, or so you thought. Frank Turek starts talking about the new heaven and the new earth and our hope, and Hitchens says, what are you talking about? What, what is this stuff you're talking about? I've never heard about that. I thought it was just saying yes to Jesus Christ, that kind of thing. But you know, for a lot of us, we haven't really paid much attention to the, the remaking of the world that we live in, the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem coming down, the hope that we actually have that we're walking towards. It's not just a prayer, but we're walking towards that day and we need to be prepared for what God is doing and be a part of that process of remaking the very world that he lives in from the inside of us out. We're supposed to be dressed and ready for God's new world. That's the message of Revelation. It's telling us, have your robes pressed and ready and white and it's only Jesus that's going to allow you to do that when you walk in step with him. Holiness starts and ends with him. And the implication is that we live our hope. If we think now is all we have, we're going to live that way. We're going to dress for it. If we think that the best is yet to come, we're going to live that way. We're going to dress appropriately. Jesus is to be our authority from beginning to end. Thought, word, and deed, attitude, inside out. If you declare Jesus is Lord. That's important, that he's the one who holds the authority in all that we'll do or say. It turns out, and this is the most remarkable thing about this part of Revelation, 
Jesus cares about you enough to invite you in. Isn't that remarkable that the God of the universe cares about us? Deeply. And so when you hear that passage again, what does Jesus say? Look, behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. I will give each person according to what they have done. In verse 14, there's a blessing there. Blessed are those. You're going to be blessed in that day beyond your wildest imaginations. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and they go through the gates into the city. Through Jesus Christ, we get communion with God and the victory of the resurrection. We get the assurance that death does not have the final word and we get to step in even now into God's new kingdom, that God's kingdom would come, his will would be done starting with my life and yours from this day forward. Be dressed and ready because blessing awaits. Let's pray together. Father, with gratitude in our hearts, we sit here on a beautiful day in a beautiful place with some great people. And God, we pray that your, your spirit would be present with us. And for those of us who feel distant from you, who've even set up a wall between us and you so that we wouldn't let you in. Break it down today. Help us get a glimpse of the hope that you give us in Jesus Christ, knowing that, yes, we can enjoy the life that we have now. You've given this to us. Not so we wouldn't enjoy it, but so that we would. But not so that we would exclusively enjoy this at the expense of the hope that you have for us. God, not all is right in this world. There are things that are profoundly wrong. Sin has touched and evil has messed up and vandalized your creation. Your shalom is not fully realized and your shekinah is not fully experienced here. But God, may we experience it more and more each day. And may you start with us as part of that broken creation and repair us from the inside out. That we would be the ambassadors of your new world sharing with others this good news, that it would be received as good. And if you're sitting in here this morning and you've never received that good news, take it in this morning. Claim Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. Father, remake us from the inside out. Pray this in your name. Amen.